Welcome to this week's podcast from Church on the Rock. We hope that it will challenge and inspire you to be a more passionate follower of Jesus. For more information about Church on the Rock, visit us at cotrcalera.com. What we're going to do is we're going to look at a story that we find in the Bible in, in Matthew chapter 2. I want us to, to read there, but before, before we kind of get there, I want to, in Numbers chapter 24, we find this prophetic message of, of the coming of Christ. And if you know, you studied anything, you, you've kind of read maybe Josh McDowell's, um, uh, you know, some of his, his books um, about, you know, the apologetics of Christ and uh, the case for Christ and the case for the resurrection and uh, the case for the virgin birth, all these kinds of, the, the, he writes these apologetic things, you know, dice. There, there are an enormous amount of prophetic words in the Old Testament, you know, prophesying the coming of this Messiah, of, of Jesus. One of those prophetic messages that we find in, in the Old Testament scripture is Numbers chapter 24, and it says in verse 17, it says, I see him, but not now I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, a scepter shall rise from Israel, and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down the son of Seth. So here's this, this prophetic message of this star that's going to rise up out of Israel. And, um, and it's, it's one of these things that, that you know, scholars, even in, even in the time of Jesus' birth, scholars would have had this information. So, you know, understanding that you know, from from the last from the moment the last prophetic message was written in Old Testament manuscript and in scripture, there was a period of about you know almost five hundred years where it was called like a silent period where God, you know, God didn't speak and and there was no prophetic message and all this. But so by the time Jesus came around, uh, the people of that day they actually had Old Testament manuscript. And we see this because Jesus quoted Old Testament scripture. You know, even the, the Pharisees and the, the Sadducees and all these guys and the, the religious leaders of the day, they, they constantly were quoting Old Testament scripture or even the Psalms and the Proverbs and, and even the writings and, and the messages of, of, of Isaiah and Jeremiah and even the minor prophets and Jonah. You know, even Jesus refers to Jonah. So Old Testament scripture was well in place by the time Jesus showed up. And, and you have to understand that, that people probably, you know, um, I mean, back then, like, you know, f- this idea of philosophy and thinking and deep thinking and, and researching and, and studying the uh, astrology and all this kind of stuff was a kind of a big deal. I mean, they didn't really have a lot of time. They didn't really have a lot of things to do back then, right? I mean, it's not like they could sit around and play Xbox or, you know, turn on their smart TV and load up Netflix or Disney Plus and be like, hey, let me watch Captain Marvel today. I, you know, they didn't, they, they, there was nothing like that that existed in their particular culture. So, you know, for them, it was always about reading Old Testament manuscripts and Old Testament scripture and, and, and studying what God had said in, in the past and all these kinds of things. And so, so you have to understand that there were people that knew of this prophetic message that existed even in the Old Testament, that there was going to be a star that was going to rise up. It was going to be different. And so when you, you ever been, like, I know that we live like in a, uh, you know, in a city, we don't live in a city city, but we live in enough places where like you've been, you ever been camping before where you're just kind of out in the woods and you're away from all the lights and stuff and you look up in the sky and a clear sky and it's just like, 
thousands of stars in the sky, right? I mean, you're just like, oh, where do those things come from? Just because when you walk out of your house normally and you live your, you know, you walk out of Walmart, whatever, you look up, you, you can't see that stuff because your eyes are so adjusted to the light here that we deal with. But if you put yourself in a dark setting, in a place where you remove all those light and artificial lights that we have, and you look up and you see thousands. All right, so these people lived like this, okay? So they, they look up and they see thousands and hundreds of stars in the heavens, and they, and they saw these things all the time. It wasn't like just, you know, once a year when they went camping out in the wilderness. This is how they lived. They could look up there, and people would look up there, and they would study the stars. And why they didn't have, you know, telescopes and all these kinds of things where they could look and, you know, deep and stuff, they still were able to map things out, and they were able to study. There was, there was even this idea that you know, they would get their directions by following the stars and following the constellations and stuff as they maybe would ship or they would go on journeys. It was one of the ways that they could help, you know, they didn't have GPS, right? I mean, they, they had to find other ways to find their way around. And that's one of the things they did. So they had this incredible understanding of, of this, you know, thing that existed, that what, what was up there and what was not up there. And then all of a sudden, you know, there's the star that comes out of nowhere. There's the star that rises up out of nowhere. And this is where we find the story of, of what we call as, um, you know, the Magi or the Kings and, we sing songs even at Christmas time. You know, we three kings of war. <clears throat> you know, we say, I'm not, I'm not going any further. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I even did that much. <clears throat> so, but, so we find this, the, the story of the Magi in Matthew chapter 2. And it says, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the, in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired them where the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, um, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod secretly called the Magi and determined them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come worship him. And after hearing the king, they went their way. And the star which they had seen in the east went before them until they came and stood over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And after coming into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they fell down on the ground to worship him. They opened their treasures, and they presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. All right. So, you know, we, we're you know, somewhat accustomed or, you know, know or relative, relatively aware of this particular story that we find. Um, you know, we, we all probably have our nativities, you know, that sit at our house, whether maybe it's in our lawn as a, or maybe it's just on a desk. We have our little nativity scene, right? And every little nativity scene you have, it's like a little barn type thing where Jesus, you know, you have Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus and probably a couple of lambs and uh, goats or donkeys or something like that. And then you have, um, you know, the shepherds 
right, with their sheep that are there. And then you have the three kings that are there somewhere. And they're kind of all spread out like there's this great monumental moment that happens at the birth of Jesus where everybody kind of shows up at once in this one moment, this one time, one, one spot fixed in time where they all are there. That's not really, prob- the, the, really the way, um, you know, things kind of went down. Um, I think when you, one of the things that you have to understand is when you read this, we see um, it says that um, after, came, after coming into the house, they saw the child with his mother. So Jesus was no longer a baby. By the time the Magi showed up, Jesus wasn't a baby anymore. Um, and he wasn't in the stable anymore. He was in a house. So he had gone from being in the inn to being in a house. He wasn't a baby, now wrapped in swelling clothes. He was actually a child now. So, and, and, you know, of course, this makes a whole lot of sense, right? Because it's not like they were going to be able to, you know, grab Delta and, you know, fly, you know, from wherever they were to wherever the star was and just kind of land and be there on the same day. I mean, these guys are having to, like, ride camels or something like that, you know. And it's just not, you know, maybe they got some Arabian horses or something. They could, but either way, they're still going to be hoofing it for a while. They're going to be, they're going to be, it's going to take, in, depending on how far, we just know that, we know the star was in the east. So we don't, we don't really even know how far that they traveled. But it probably took a long time. And if Jesus was no longer a baby and he was now a child, we could, we could assume that Jesus was, could have been one or two years old by the time the Magi showed up on the scene. You know, um, and, and all of this stuff had kind of transpired and gone along. And we see this story here. And, and the truth be known is even though we sing this song kind of called We Three Kings, we don't know that they're kings. The Bible says that they're magi, you know, but there's, there's really nothing there that tells us that, that they're kings. They could be, you know, wise men is also, the, you know, a general uh, thought. Uh, there's some legend that has it that, um, that kind of goes along with these three guys from a historical standpoint and um, that kind of includes their names. One's, one's name was supposed to be uh, this name Gaspar, who supposedly had brown hair with a brown beard. Um, he, wears, he, he wore a green cloak uh, with a gold crown and green jewels on it. And he was supposed to be the king of Sheba. And Gaspar represents the frankincense that was brought to Jesus. Melchior was one of the other guys with a long white hair and a white beard. And he, he wear, wore a gold cloak. He was the king of Arabia. Uh, and he was the one that brought the gold to Jesus. And uh, Belthazar was the third one who was a black skin, black beard, uh, who wore a purple cloak. And he was the king of Tars of Egypt. And he's the one that supposedly brought uh, the myrrh to Jesus. But what, what, if, what we don't know, we don't really know that they're kings. Uh, you know, the Bible says, you know, my, my scripture that I, when I read, when I, tr- I read for you today, talked about them being magi. There's some talk about them being wise men. We don't really have an understanding of exactly who exactly they were, what they were doing. But we do know this, is that they were people that understood the constellations. You know, so whether they were some form of an astrologer or something, they understood that when they looked up in the heavens and they saw this star, like that star wasn't there the other day. All right. And the scripture talks about that there's going to be a star that rises up in the east. And when I look to the east and I see a new star in the heavens, that's got to be what the Bible is talking about, that the Savior has been born and I need to go find him. 
It's even, you know, widely understood that for the most part, um, you know, all three of these men responded to the sighting of the star and traveled separately until they reached Jerusalem where they eventually met up together while they were in Jerusalem. In other words, they weren't just three guys hanging out together, you know, three kings, you know, hanging out in the same house together or magi or whatever. But they, they saw things separately, and this divine appointment led them all to this one spot where they all kind of met up together in Jerusalem. Somehow they ended up finding each other, whether it was they were kind of searching information or trying to figure out exactly where they were supposed to go. Whatever it was, it drew them all together, and they ended up together. And they came to Jesus, okay, obviously not um, in the end anymore, and he wasn't a baby anymore. Most, actually, most theologians believe Jesus was one to two years old. And, and we see this, this idea, this, this, this story of these three guys that did this. And some of the things that I want to point out to you, I want to actually point out three things this morning as we kind of look at the story of these three guys that set out on this journey to find um, the Savior, the, the Christ child that had been born. I think three things that, that we can learn uh, from these, 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 these guys that went and did this. Number one, as the Bible says this, that if you seek him, you will find him. You see, these three guys set out on a journey to find Jesus. They set out on a journey to find, um, uh, find this, this Christ child. Obviously, at some level, these guys had to have been uh, students of the Scripture. So, you know, whether they were, uh, you know, Jews who had been kind of separated from their homeland or whether they were people who had, you know, learned about the reputation and the glory of God and the majesty of God through Old Testament manuscripts and, and, and the prophets and, the, and the, the writers of Old Testament Scripture, somehow they had gotten a hold of Old Testament Scripture and had studied it such a degree that they believed it was true. So when they looked into the, uh, into the sky and saw the star, their first thought was to go back to Scripture where Scripture says that there was going to be a star that was going to rise up in the east and it was going to be a sign that the savior had been born all right and so this led them to the place where they said you know what it's not just good enough to know okay that the savior has been born okay i need to go find him i need to go search him out i need to go find him and the bible says this about us that if we seek him we will find him in other words like we're the ones that have to you know get up and and start pursuing jesus and if we want to find jesus then you got to get up and you got to pursue him because you're not going to find him unless you pursue him. In other words, if you just sit around like a bump on a pickle, you know, just twiddling your hands, thinking, I hope that Jesus shows up one day and does some kind of writing on a wall and tells me what he wants me to do, okay, then you're out of luck. You're not going to find God that way. The Bible says that you have to seek him if you want to find him. And these three guys, okay, they sat on a journey. They start, they saw the star and said, I'm going to find the Christ child and I'm going to seek him out. And the Bible says that if you seek him, you will find him. Just like these three guys, they sought out Jesus and they found him. All right? I think one of the things I remember back in the day, one, a book that really made a big impression on me and my walk with God back in you know, my early 20s was this book by Tommy Tenney called The God Chasers. Anybody ever read The God Chasers? Ooh, one person. All right. I just need to buy everybody the book, right? That's what it is. Uh, but he, he talks about, um, you know, obviously being a God chaser. 
and, and being somebody that pursues and chases after God. And um, he uses one of these illustrations in, um, which I think is, was, um, you know, was incredible at the time, even more so incredible as I, as I grew up and, and began to have my own family. You know, when you have kids like, um, like my four-year-old right now, Skylar, for example, and um, if you ever play like a game like hide-and-go-seek, Okay. Now, the competitive nature inside of me is that, like, I want to hide and I don't want you to find me. All right. So that's that's. But you know, obviously, I change that though when I'm playing with a four-year-old. So um, even though um, the 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 way to win the game is to hide so nobody can find you, like you don't win like when you play like that with a four-year-old. <laughs> that's what makes everybody mad, and you basically sit there your entire life, right? So. Um, the way you win with a four-year-old is that you hide in such a way that they can find you. Because the best part about the game is when they find you, right? Because then it's like, ah, you got me. And then you grab each other and fall to the ground and tickle monster, ah, you know. And then it's like, oh, let's do this again. And you're like, now you got to do it, you know, 15 million times. Uh, <clears throat> because that's the way it goes. So um, the 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 best way to play the game is to hide in such a way that they can find. So here's the thing. So God, in a way, God plays hide and go seek with us. But he does it the same way. He doesn't hide so we can't find him. He hides so we can find him because the purpose of the game is that we find him. And he wants us to find him. Right? But Skylar, is, is, is even as bad as, even if I hide, if, even if I choose the worst hiding place available in my house, if Skylar sits her butt on a couch and doesn't get up and kind of try to come find me, she won't find me. Not because I've hidden so well, but because she didn't seek me out. Right? So God doesn't hide himself from you because he's such a good hider. If we're not finding him, it's more than likely because we're not seeking him out. All right? Because the Bible says very plainly, if you seek me, you will find me. And so it's this idea that, like, we need to be God chasers, that we chase after God, that we pursue God. And one of the temptations in our life is, that, is to have this philosophy that, like, well, this is the way God has always done it for me in the past, so this is the way God's done it for me in the future, and I just don't understand why God's not doing it this way right now. Okay, And so we have this, this thought like, well, the last time I prayed and God answered my prayer, I was on my knees with my fingers crossed. I had my Bible sitting in front of me, and I was like this right here. And so this is the way I'm going to pray every time I pray. I'm about to fall down. All right, This is the way I'm going to pray every time I pray from now on because this is the way God did it last time. And God's like, what, what does that have to do with anything? In the way up? All right? And so we had the same thing. Well, you know, in the past, I've always just kind of gone to church, and, and God's just kind of shown up. And, and God's like, no, you know what? Well, that, just because I've done it like that in the past, I mean, I'm going to do it like that right now. Plus, I want you to grow up. I want you to, I'm not going to hide in the same place. Not gonna hide. I want you to come look for me over here. Come over here. Do this. Do something different. Find a different way to pursue me. But either way, what you need to understand is that we need to be people that pursue him, that we chase after him, that we go and seek him, just like the wise men. If the wise men wanted to, I mean, they were probably pretty wealthy people. I mean, to get up and just like hoof it for, you know, for a year and a half and just leave the family and everything else behind to go chase. I mean, that was a big sacrifice sacrifice for them to go do it, right? But they made the sacrifice anyways because they felt like finding the Savior was the most important thing they could probably do in their life. 
And they pursued this child until they found him. And we have the same mandate, even in our own life, that God wants us to pursue him. He wants us to come find him. And if we will come find him, if we will draw near to him, in James 4, it says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. If we will go pursue him, if we will seek him, the Bible says we will find him. The second thing that we see here is this, this model of generosity in these, these wise men. Um, they, they didn't go seeking Jesus for what Jesus could do for them. They went to go find this child to say, no, I want to give you something. I'm not, I'm not coming to find this, this, this Savior so he can maybe fix me out of the jam that I'm in right now. No, I'm, I'm going to find this Savior because I want, to, I want to lavish something upon him. I want to give something to him. And that's the thing that we see here uh, even in these guys that pursued Jesus. They understood that, um, that, that the impact and the power behind generosity. Right? And we see three different gifts here. The gift of gold. Uh, it was often reserved for royalty. And the Magi had seen the star and recognized the importance of the star in the sky as a sign of a spectacular birth. The importance of the gift was that it represented the fact that Jesus was royal. You know, um, you know even when you talk about getting saved, when you talk about just being born again, Romans says this. You, know, you ever follow the Romans' road of salvation, right? Um, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And then uh, Romans 5.8, but, uh, but God demonstrates his own love for this while we were sinners, God, Christ died for us. And then Romans uh, um, 8.28 says, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved, right? Um, um, Rome, Rome, that Romans, um, um, that Romans 8.28 verse, <laughs> For some reason, I'm thinking that's the wrong reference. Um, but um, it, it says, um, th- this, this passage, it says right here, it says that if you, if you believe in your heart that God raised them from their dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. So there's two things that, that are required for salvation. Number one, that you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. And number two, uh, that you confess Jesus to be Lord. Okay, you don't confess Jesus to be Savior, you confess him to be Lord, and in confessing him to be Lord, he becomes your Savior, right? One of the things that we do sometimes in our lives, though, is we look at Jesus exclusively only as our Savior. Well, he's just such a great Savior, and he's good, and we've talked about it. He's just a good, good, he's a good father. We see this, he's a good friend. We see that in Scripture, we see all of those things, but he's also Lord, Okay? And he deserves royalty. He deserves to be treated like royalty in our life. That he's the most important. That he's the royal king. That he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. All right. So even in salvation, we have to recognize the fact that Jesus is Lord in order to be saved. All right. And then we see um, in, in the, the frankincense. Um, the Jewish people had a common use for frankincense. It was directly connected to worship in the temple. So the priest, whenever the priest would go in uh, to worship God in the temple, there was all, they always had frankincense burning on the altar. And it, and it kind of burned this white smoke that was this sweet-smelling aroma. 
right? It was a sweet-smelling flavor and aroma was incense, and it was to be burned on this altar. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love. Jesus Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. This idea of offering, you know, the Bible, in in Romans, it says, again, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, okay, which is, is an acceptable, pleasing thing for God. So we have to offer our lives as a sacrifice of worship, our life, everything that we have. This idea of frankincense being given was this idea of this sweet smelling aroma to Christ that they were given this, 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 this spice that was to, to give off that. And we have the opportunity to do the same thing when we give our life, when we sacrifice our life for God to say, God, all of my life is yours. Everything that I have is yours. Then when, when we live our life, that it becomes a sweet smelling aroma to God. It becomes a spiritual act of worship to God. And it brings honor and glory to God in everything that we do. And the third thing, the third gift that they gave um, was myrrh. And myrrh was extremely valuable. Basically, had a number of uses. But the most common use for myrrh was perfume. uh, And the, the major use of perfume in that particular culture, in that particular time, was during burials. Uh, myrrh, myrrh was placed on the clothes to use to wrap bodies for burial to help prevent the smell of decay following death. And, and so, uh, you know, Paul writes in Philippians, he says, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed, being like him in his death, in order that I may attain the resurrection of the dead. The Bible says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The oldest passed away, the newest come. All right, so we see here this idea that this, this myrrh was used um, in, in, in kind of death burials to, to, uh, you know, to eliminate the smell of decay. And it's the same in our life. Like we're supposed to die. Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. A cross was a symbol of death. It was a symbol of sacrifice that I'm going to die to my own flesh. And I'm going to give way to the spirit in my life. And when we die to our old flesh, okay, and we eliminate that aspect of our life, listen, then we become a sweet-smelling aroma to God all right, by the life of worship that we give him. Robert or whoever, if y'all come. And so we see these three major themes through generosity in the life of these of these wise men, these magi that were there uh, to honor Jesus as Lord, to live a life of worship that is a sweet-smelling aroma to God, and then the third one, to dying to our flesh and living a life led by the Spirit. And I think the final thing that we see here um, in this particular story of of these guys is um, in verse 12, it says, and, and having been warned by God in a dream to not return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Um, you see, when, when we come to a place where we meet Jesus face to face, when we come to a place where we meet God face to face, let me tell you something. It changes you in such a way that you don't live the same way you were. All right? And so these Magi were changed by God that they didn't return home the same way they came. 
they left a different way. And it's the same thing that, that we do in our own life. Um, you know, I know for, you know, for, you know, nine years or so when I was a youth pastor, the name of our youth ministry is called U-Turn Youth Ministries. Um, there was a, a big uh, youth ministry out in Tulsa, Oklahoma called 180 that was kind of like the pinnacle of all youth ministries back in, in those days when I was a youth pastor. And it was always this idea that God, uh, that, that, you know, you, you can be heading in your life in this direction. And when you encounter God, God will cause you to tur- do a 180 or a U-turn and you begin to head in the opposite direction. That my life was headed this way and all of a sudden now I met Jesus. And because I met Jesus, I'm turning around and I'm going to head this way. You see, when we, and, and, and this happens even in small doses, even in our life as a believer. Because you know how it is sometimes, it's just so easy to get off course. It just really is. Even when you think about driving a car, it only really takes a fraction of a change with that little steering wheel. Just a little bit, just a little bit like this. And before you know it, once you get down the road, you're way, you're, you're way off over here. <clears throat> if you're not in a ditch dead somewhere, or if it's just a flat road, you're going to be way off over here. And the longer it stays in that position, the more you're going to continue to drift off. And it's just easy sometimes in our life to get to a place where Man, we were heading in this direction that God wanted us to be in. And I just kind of veered off a little bit. All right. And so here we see the story of these magi when they met Jesus. The Bible says that they, they left in a different direction. That they changed course in the way that they went because they were warned by God or whatever it was. It still, it literally changed the way they went home because initially they were, they were ready to go back to Herod and to tell him, we know that what Herod was trying to do. He's trying to kill the baby and stuff like that. We know that, that that's the stuff that was going on. But these guys had changed the course of their life and they headed back in a different direction. And when we meet Jesus, doesn't matter when it is, if it's the first time ever, he'll change the way that we live. If it's the second time, the third time, the 15th, hundredth time we meet Jesus, every time I, every time I come into the presence of God in a real authentic way, God always changes the course of my life. Like there may be a little bit off right here. Maybe it's my heart that, you know, I've just become bitter or frustrated or angry, or maybe I'm just, you know, upset about something. And then I come into the presence of God and I begin to pray and God says, no, hey, I got a little course correction we got to make right here. We got to fix this thing because you've got to, you got to veering off a little bit right now and I need to get you back on the road. You see, when we, when, when we really come into his presence, we really meet him. It changes the course of our life. It changes the way we live. It changes the way we think and it should, it should, it should change everything about us because we don't really know most of the time, right? I mean, the Bible says the heart of man is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Our heart is desperately wicked. You know, our ideas and philosophies and, you know, can just get really jacked up sometimes when you start incorporating all the things that this world has to offer and speak to you sometimes. It can just really mess, it can mess you up and, 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 we have this opportunity to be in God's presence to change us, to change the way we think, to, to, to maybe redirect the course of our steps so that we can be back in step with what God wants us to do with our life. Come on, will you, will you stand to your feet this, this morning?